Gary Zacharias with The Apologist Bookshelf. I want to take on a book that's uh, amazing and powerful. It's called Evidence That Demands a Verdict. Now that's Josh McDowell's book. Originally it came out in 1972. It was revised in 79 and then 1999. But of course there have been a lot of discoveries since then and there have been a lot of challenges that have come along since then. So this is a, a totally revised, totally changed, uh, completely updated book. On the front cover, it says, How to Answer Bible Skeptics Confidently with Powerful New Evidence for Life-Changing Truth. And there are so many people that give it a thumbs up. Just real quickly, I just have to mention a couple of people. Lee Strobel says, Here's a treasure trove of apologetic gems. Eric Metaxas, who's the host of a radio show, he says, This book changed my life. It showed me the staggering welter of evidence for the historicity of the Bible. So, and there are many, many more, but I'm going to skip over that for right now. Just to give you an idea of the kinds of things that this book covers, part one is evidence for the Bible, including Old Testament and New Testament, Gnostic Gospels, other non-biblical texts. So it's, it's good in that field. Second section is evidence for Jesus, including things like uh, the prophecies and the resurrection. Is Christianity a copycat religion? That's a kind of a new charge. Uh, Zeitgeist, a, a video, talked about that. Part three, evidence for the Old Testament, historicity of the patriarchs, for example, the historicity of the Exodus, historicity of the conquest, and on and on. So uh, that's something that doesn't really get much play, it seems like. Then part four is evidence for truth. What a shame. We have to argue that there's such a thing as truth these days. What's happened to our society? Really? We have to argue that there's truth? Yeah, I'm afraid so. All right, so let me take you, instead of uh, taking on a particular challenge, I like the introductory material. I think it's really, really good. So, for example, they have a section that says, Five Reasons Apologetics is Important Today. So I'd like to talk about that. Reason one, why is apologetics important? Well, we're all apologists anyway. So in other words, it's not just a spiritual gift for a few people. Uh, it says uh, it's for everybody. All Christians are called to be ready to have an answer. That's First Peter 3.15 and Jude 3. We're all making a case for Christianity. Just some of us do it better than others. We have to be really careful. We have to make a good case. So that's what they're talking about there. It says the question is not whether we're apologists. What kind of apologists we are? That's what's important. So number one, what's the reason apologetics is important today? Well, we're all apologists. Number two, Apologetics strengthens believers. He says many, uh, they say many Christians. Oh, I said they and, and he. Let me get this uh, straight here. Josh McDowell wrote the first one. He and his son, John, uh, Sean, have written the second one. So reason number two, apologetics strengthens believers. Both Josh and Sean say many Christians say they believe in Jesus, but they can't articulate their reasons for this. Now it says many people, if they get this information, they have renewed confidence. And many uh, get more eager and willing to share their faith. I've heard that with our apologetics class at church. The number one answer uh, Steve and I got as we led the class, we asked them, what are you getting out of this class? And they said, confidence. So that's good. So number one, apologetics is important because we're all doing it anyway. Apologetics, for good or for bad. Number two, apologetics strengthens believers. Number three, apologetics helps students hang on to their faith. They've done all sorts of surveys about what's happened to 
Christian kids who go off to college after they're out of high school. And the, the rough estimate is between a third and two-thirds of young people leave. They leave the church. Now, they have a lot of different reasons, but intellectual questions are one important factor. They really have, young people do have intellectual questions. And if they don't get answered, they think there are no answers and they leave the church. How sad is that? Because there are answers. Okay, so let's go over those reasons again. That's three of them so far. We're all apologists. Why, why do we need apologetics? Well, we're all doing it anyway. Number two, we strengthen believers. Number three, we help kids, help students hang on to their faith. Number four, it helps with evangelism. They mentioned Tim Keller. Tim Keller said Christians in the West, talking about the need for apologetics, Christians in the West will finally be facing what missionaries around the world have faced for years, how to communicate the gospel to Muslims and Buddhists and Hindus and adherents of various religions. So we need to know this kind of stuff. People have questions. So we need to respond and, and clear away objections people have, misconceptions they have about Christ. So it'll help with evangelism. And then finally, number five, apologetics help shape culture. Oh, amen to that. Ideas have consequences. We have uh, abandoned the field and bad ideas are out there and they're having tremendously negative consequences. We need to change our culture and apologetics can help do that, can help shape culture. So five reasons why we need apologetics. We're all doing it anyway. We're all apologists. Number two, apologetics strengthens believers. Number three, apologetics helps students hang on to their faith. Number four, apologetics helps with evangelism. And then number five, apologetics helps shape culture, and it sure does. Well, okay, that's a quick part of the intro. Here's another part of the book's intro, and I like this too. So I'm going to kind of hustle through them, but these are wonderful. They call it 10 Misconceptions About the Christian Faith. 10 Misconceptions About the Christian Faith. So, so here's number one. Christianity doesn't need evidence because faith is blind. Well, faith is not blind. Faith is not a leap in the dark. Uh, I have a talk that I've done on that, and the idea is Christianity is a more of a trust, I would say, than a faith. It's a trust in evidence. It's an evidence-based religion. Paul says if the resurrection didn't happen, this is a waste of time. In the Old Testament, God showered Egypt with all sorts of miracles first, and then he invited Israel to follow him into the wilderness. Just take a look at Exodus 14.31. The McDowell's say, Israel saw the great work which the Lord had done in Egypt. So the people feared the Lord and believed the Lord and his servant Moses. So it was miracles first and then the call to belief. And we see that in the New Testament. Jesus heals that man who uh, was the uh, paralytic. And he says, your sins are forgiven. And people said, no, come on. He said, well, so that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. And then he says, Arise, take up your bed to the paralytic. And he does. So he healed the man so that people would know. They wouldn't just trust because Jesus told them. He showed them. So Christianity is an evidential-based belief. So there's one misconception. Christianity doesn't need evidence because faith is blind. Here's another misconception. Christianity can't be true because the church has committed injustices. Well, sure, there are all sorts of terrible things that have happened, and we need to examine ourselves. But they said, you know, if you're a non-Christian, maybe those people should be answering a few tough questions as well. So, for example, does the moral failure of Christians undermine the claim that Jesus is truly God? That's a really good question, isn't it? 
And then they said, you know, character flaws of the church shouldn't be surprising. The Bible says we're broken. Of course, we're going to make some terrible mistakes. And secondly, many people who claim to be Christians are not really Christians. It's because they say they are. They have a really fuzzy idea of what it means to be a Christian. And they also say the church has committed injustices. Yes, but balance that. Think about all the wonderful things Christianity has done. The positive contributions. Hospitals, universities, literacy and education for everybody. Separation of political powers, civil liberties, abolition of slavery, modern science, elevation of women, benevolence, charity, high regard for human life. All of these things have been countered and uh, diluted by Christianity and helped. So let's go back again one more time. Misconception one, Christianity doesn't need evidence. Faith is blind. Not true. Not for Christianity. Misconception number two, Christianity can't be true because the church has committed injustices. Well, yes, it probably has, but it's also done some amazingly good things. And uh, Christianity predicts that there will be sin and terrible things done. Here's misconception number three. The hypocrisy of Christians undermines the reasonableness of the Christian faith. No doubt, Christian hypocrisy has done a lot of damage. They mentioned Os Guinness. He says the challenge of hypocrisy is probably second only to the problem of suffering and evil as far as making people uh, walk away from Christianity. So they said, look, if, if that is the case, and we all agree there are hypocrites, we need to examine ourselves. Have we done that? And also they said it's an example of a genetic fallacy. that uh, It's a claim that's dismissed because of some perceived fault in its origin or its genesis. And they make a point, if, if the Christian faith is true, it's going to be true even if nobody believes it, or if everybody who believes it were hypocrites. If it's false, it'd be false even if everybody did believe it and there were no hypocrites. So if you're upset about, they said, if you're upset about hypocrisy in the church, you're in good company. Jesus felt the same way. And then they end this section with the question, well, if you walked into a hospital, would you be surprised if you found sick people everywhere? It's easy to forget that everybody came in the church at different points in life. Some people are far more shattered and broken than others and are taking longer to heal. So is there hypocrisy? Sure. Again, the, the Bible predicts that. Number four, misconception four, the intolerance of Christians is a good reason to reject it. And they just simply start off guilty as charged. Bunch of intolerant people, no doubt about it. But keep something in mind. When Christians act in an arrogant, judgmental manner toward others, they are not following the scripture. They're not following the teachings of Jesus. Well, if you condemn Christianity because some Christians are misbehaving, that's another way of committing that genetic fallacy, which is dismissing a claim because of a fault in its origin. If somebody says, uh, uh, Mark Middleberg, they quote him as saying, you know what's fascinating is that the people who condemn Christians for acting as if they're right and others are wrong are in that action acting if they themselves are right and Christians are wrong. So that's pretty ironic, isn't it? It says, you know, people who accuse Christians of being intolerant actually have a pretty distorted view of what tolerance really teaches or what it really entails. Rather than accepting all views as equally valid, what is true tolerance? <clears throat> you don't approve of somebody's values and beliefs and yet you still respect them. So you don't tolerate things you approve of. You tolerate things that you don't approve of. 
So charging Christians with intolerance, they also says, they also say that it assumes that there's some kind of objective moral standard. But if there's no God, where's that standard? Okay, so that was misconception four about the intolerance issue. Number five, the misconception five. There can't be just one right religion. How can you say Jesus is the only way to God? That's intolerant. That's exclusivist. That's naive. Well, here's a great answer to that one. We're not saying it. Jesus said it. Take it up with him. Uh, and they mentioned that, you know, it'd be nice if everybody could be right. But this simple reason tells you that's not the case. By its very nature, truth is exclusive. For example, if one plus one is two, then it doesn't equal three or four or five. So it's exclusive, isn't it? And they have a chart here about basic beliefs of major religions and how they disagree. It shows that all religions, even by their own claims, they differ from each other. They have a different idea of God. They have a different idea of salvation. They have a, they have a different idea about other religions and all. Now, before they leave this misconception, they say, you know, Christianity is not exclusive at all. It's the most inclusive religion. Christ invites everybody unto himself. I mean, think about Mormonism. They say it formerly excluded black people from the priesthood. The message of Jesus has always been for everybody. Well, I'm up to 13 minutes here. Let me, let me hustle through these others because I really like this. Misconception number six, Christianity and science are at war. That's not true. It started from a person's book in 1896. A man named White released a book entitled The History of Warfare of Science with Theology in Christendom. He invented this. It concluded that there's, uh, other people have included, there's, concluded there's no conflict between religion and science. Christian theology, in fact, was essential for the rise of science. So keep that in mind. It was the, Christianity was a seedbed of modern science. There was no clash there at all. The real conflict is between science and naturalism that says there's no supernatural out there. Misconception number seven, God hasn't provided enough evidence. Why doesn't Jesus, uh, why don't we see a sign on the moon that says Jesus saves? And uh, so the Sean McDowell said after examining the evidence, though, that he he says, you know, God has made himself known. For, for example, the cosmological argument. The universe had a beginning. How did it begin? Now, that's a long argument, but the idea is there's a big bang. Everything came into existence. So something had to bring everything into existence outside of matter, space, time, and energy. Here's another reason we can say God has provided evidence. Fine-tuning of the laws of physics. Everything, that, all these laws that govern the universe are exquisitely fine-tuned for human life. Here's another way God has revealed himself, the design argument from DNA. That's a computer language. Languages are put out by intelligent beings. Then there's a the moral argument. It says God has not provided exhaustive knowledge of his existence, but he's given sufficient knowledge if people have open hearts and minds. It says uh, there's no reason at all to think that if God were to make his existence more manifest, that more people would come into a saving relationship, mere showmanship is not going to bring a change of heart. I think that's a really good point. In the Old Testament, think about this. In the Old Testament, God reveals himself in all sorts of amazing things, the plagues, the pillar of fire, the parting of the Red Sea. What did that do to the people? Did that produce a complete heart change? No. We, we read that story. It's really sad. They fell into apostasy over and over and over again. All right. 
Or misconception eight, being a good person is enough to go to heaven. Huh. Is that right? Well, if the if hell were the consequences for small missteps, it'd seem remarkably unjust, wouldn't it, to not let people into heaven? The Bible, though, has a really stark view of human nature. Human beings are the most valuable creations. We have rebelled, though, against our Creator. So God doesn't send good people to hell. There's no such thing as a good person. That's everybody. So being a good person is enough to get to heaven? No, I don't think so. Depiction of human nature, you just look at humanity. Look at the story of humanity. Human fallenness actually makes us appreciate the gospel more. We can only appreciate the work of Christ when we understand the, the evil and the corruption that we've made of this world and what we have inside of us. So, can a good person go to heaven? It's true, many people outwardly can live good lives, but for Jesus, evil is a matter of the heart. And he even says in Mark ten eighteen, no one is good. Here's misconception number nine. A good God would prevent evil and suffering. Well, good heavens, this would take up an entire episode, wouldn't it? Or several. People write books on this. It says, uh, people do hurt, don't they? It says, maybe we should define what we mean by evil. Evil is not a thing. It's a departure from the way things ought to be. So when somebody raises the problem of evil, they're assuming that there's such a thing as objective good. And if there's objective good, it's got to be beyond the human race. Otherwise, it's just our personal preferences. So if there's objective good, then there has to be a God. They quote from C.S. Lewis. My argument against God was that the universe seemed so cruel and unjust, but how had I got this idea of just and unjust? A man does not call a, crooked, a line crooked unless he has some idea of a straight line. What was I comparing the universe with when I called it unjust? So actually, the existence of evil ends up being an argument for God. All right, well, there's a lot more on this, so I'm going to uh, go past this one. A lot of reasons, people used to think, if you can't think of a reason for God allowing evil, then he, he must not exist. Now, philosophers have gone beyond that now. They, they say, no, that's not an argument against God. There may be reasons that we just don't understand because we're so finite and so limited. Okay, so that's misconception number nine. Here's mis misconception number ten. Biblical teaching on sex is repressive and hateful. They think of uh, Christians as repressive and joyless and controlling. So does God hate sex? No. He created sex. He said it was good. Proverbs 5, 18 and 19 talks about rejoicing in your wife. The Song of Solomon speaks about the power and beauty of sex. So there's a lot about that. Does God's view of sex bring harm? Really? Well, what would the world be like, they ask, if everyone followed the biblical plan for sex, engaging in sexual activity and committed lifelong relationship with someone of the opposite sex? What do you think? Would there be more suffering or would there be less? Would we have more intact marriages or more broken homes? Would there be more fatherless homes or more involved fathers? Would STDs, teen pregnancies, and abortions increase or decrease? Well, I think we all know the answer to that. Uh, somebody, oh, I guess somebody has uh, quoted here, it appears that the most up-to-date research suggests that most humans are designed to be sexually monogamous with one mate for life. Okay, so again, there's so much of this book. I do plan to come back to it and, and cover a chapter or two with you later on, but I just wanted to get a feeling for the powerful start to this and then the, the amazing amounts of evidence that are in here. That does demand a verdict, evidence that does demand a verdict. So I hope you enjoyed it. It's a good book. It's I think it's one that everybody should have on their bookshelf somewhere. Uh, I hope you have a chance to pick it up and take a look at it sometime. 
Josh McDowell and Sean McDowell, both done a magnificent job. Well, thanks for this uh, podcast and hope to see you on another one.